Uh, every month uh, since the beginning of the year, we've been having someone come and kind of share their story about God's faithfulness in their life. And today I want to ask Whitney, uh, Whitney Hare, to come. And I think God's been working in Whitney's life, and she's going to tell us um, what's going on and what God has been doing and what God has done. And all glory to God, right? Right. Amen. Thanks for doing this, Whitney. <laughs> Talking to the microphone, they, they need to hear you. I want to share my story today to glorify God and testify to God's light in darkness. I grew up with loving parents. I had three siblings. We were all very close. It was busy and full of joy. When I was seven, my five-year-old brother was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's a fatal disease that progressively weakens and destroys muscles. By the time he was eight, he was in a wheelchair full-time. We knew the future was going to be hard and that his life would be short. We had never really gone to church consistently, but when my older siblings were confirmation age, we started coming to Calvary. I joined the youth group, and I loved it. It was a place where I felt safe and loved. I don't recall exactly when or why I stopped going, but my late teenage years were challenging, and I turned away from God. My brother was wasting away in front of me, and my dad was going through alcoholism. I started listening to the influences around me instead of the inner voice encouraging me in what was good. When my brother was 17, he was put on hospice care. They guessed that he had about six months to live. I felt like there was no point to life anymore, and I was so far away from God that disobedience became normal. I didn't care about myself. My worth was determined by what other people thought of me. Everything I did was to make people like me. It didn't matter if they were good people. I let people hurt me, and I hurt myself. My life was a revolving door of shame, regret, and hurt. My friendships were shallow and fleeting. In that darkness, even in, the, in my disobedience, God was working in and for me. Years went by, and my brother was still alive and doing well. My dad was sober and had been for years. I even met my future husband. He was respectful and caring and genuinely liked who I was. I hadn't been to church in years, but when we got engaged, we started coming to Calvary. We wanted to get married here, and we knew we wanted kids and for them to be raised in the church. I bought a Bible, but I was so intimidated by it, I didn't know where to begin, so I didn't. We sat in the pews on Sundays, listened to the message, and I believed I was taking it in and using it in my life. I didn't try to connect with anyone because I was scared people would think I wasn't Christian enough to hold a conversation. I was worried I would say something dumb. I didn't think I could be authentic or ask questions because I should know more than I did. I believed in God, so I came to church. I prayed occasionally, and I let myself believe that was enough. Then one night, I got a phone call at 4 a.m. It was my mom. My brother passed away in his sleep. My best friend, the little boy I shared, 
every childhood memory with. The person I spent my life watching out for and taking care of was gone. He was 24. Just a few weeks before, I was by his side as he went in to have surgery to have a feeding tube placed. It was a very risky procedure due to his health, and we were so scared to lose him then. But he made it through, so we thought we had been given more time. Losing him like that was devastating. My hope was gone. The only thing that kept me together was my family, knowing that I had two little boys at home that needed me. So even though I felt lost and hopeless, I kept going through the motions. About six months later, I was reading through the bulletin on Sunday morning, and I noticed a grief share group was starting in a few weeks. I had no intention of attending because I didn't know anybody and I didn't know the Bible. The next Sunday, I saw it in there and I couldn't stop thinking about it, but I still didn't sign up. The day before it started, I was watching my kids play and I felt so empty. I didn't decide I wanted to join. I just had my phone in my hand and suddenly found myself calling to ask if I still could. It was like God did it for me. The next morning I went. As I sat there, the wall I had been building up broke down. We went around the room to tell our story. I said one word and I lost it. I cried so hard. And I kept trying to stop and get the words out, but I just couldn't. Karen Fleming, the group leader, hugged me, and the rest of the group patiently waited for me to get my story out. This was a new beginning for me. For the next few months, we spent time in the Bible, talking about death and grief and the hope that is only found in Jesus. I was so comforted by God's words, these words that had always been available to me that I had never really read. I hungered for more. Karen told me about a Bible app. The app had Bible reading plans, so I started a plan to read the Bible in one year. The more I read, the more I wanted to talk about it and ask questions. I reconnected with my now dear friend, Becky Carlson. We hadn't been in touch since the years I was in youth group. We got together a couple of times just to get to know each other, and I started asking her questions. I told her I wanted to do more, but I didn't know where to start. And she asked me to do a Bible study with her, literally called Start Here. We spent the summer going through the study. It was enlightening, and I loved getting to talk to someone about God. When we finished our study, I needed a next step, so I joined the Wednesday night women's Bible study. Going through the Word together and sharing our life experiences creates a connection and a strong community. I didn't realize what I had been missing by not connecting with people at church. The sense of belonging that I had always longed for was here with God and His people. The shallow friendships I had always known were replaced with friendships deeply rooted in love and acceptance. If you've ever felt like you don't know where to start or like you're too introverted to join a group or connect with people, I hope I can encourage you to take the first step. Start with introducing yourself or do a Bible reading plan or join a group. You will not regret it. God will be with you, and he wants his church to be where you belong. God transformed me from someone who was scared to have a conversation to someone who, was, who asked to be baptized in front of the church and who is willingly standing up here with a microphone telling my story. <laughs> if you aren't sure if the people here love you, they do. If you don't think you're smart enough to study the Bible, you are. If you don't know if you can grow spiritually, you can. 
When I look back at my life, I can see even in the very broken parts that God was there. He was getting me through to the next step. He was laying the path in front of me. So I'll wrap this up with a word from Lamentations 3.22. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for listening to my story. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Whitney. Thank you for what you've done in her life and her willingness to share her story with us, God. I thank you that it just encourages us to, in so many different ways, whether it's to read the Bible or put our complete trust in you or mentor somebody else or be mentored by someone. God, we thank you for the relationships that we have in this church family. And I pray for Whitney and Joel and their kids as they move away in in June, Lord, I pray that you would just bless them and keep them and encourage them and and keep them connected to a body of believers, a family of believers, and to you through your word and Holy Spirit. So we just thank you, Lord, for that awesome word, Lord, of encouragement that Whitney gave today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Whitney. Morning, church. This is the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 13, verses 1 to 6. Keep on loving one another as brothers and sisters. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by so doing, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. Continue to remember those in prison as if you were together with them in prison, and those who are mistreated as if you yourselves were suffering. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have, because God had said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Amen. Thank you, Angeline. This is a great verse in Hebrews, and I really want to focus in on one of the verses, but cover all of them, so you can keep your finger on the text, and we're going to be going through these uh, verses together, and Hebrews 13.4 says, marriage should be honored by all. Why? Because marriage is precious, that's why. The word for honor more commonly means precious in the Bible. The word is used in 1 Corinthians 3.12, where Paul speaks of gold, silver, and precious stones. Same word. It's used in 1 Peter 1.19 in reference to the precious blood of Christ. Same word. In 2 Peter 1.4, it's used to refer to the very great and precious promises. Same word. And so when Hebrews 13, 4 says marriage should be honored by all, we should think precious. The Bible's telling us something this morning. Let marriage always be thought of as precious. Let it be treasured like gold and silver and rare jewels. Let it be revered and respected like the most noble, virtuous person you've ever known. Let it be esteemed and valued as something terribly costly like 
some family heirloom. In other words, when you think of marriage, let yourself be gripped by emotions of tremendous respect and reverence and even sanctity. In relation to marriage, cultivate the feeling that this is not to be touched quickly or handled casually or treated commonly. I know at weddings, I always say marriage should not be entered into unadvisedly, but reverently, discreetly, and in the fear of God. In God's eyes, marriage is precious. And therefore, he says, marriage should be honored by all because marriage should be a picture of Christ's relationship with the church. And that's why there are such attacks on the family today wanting to redefine marriage. One of the most powerful witnesses to the truth of Jesus and the reality of God is a good marriage. No wonder the family, and in particular marriages, not only in our culture, but in our churches, are under attack, and there are many casualties. And so I'm asking God to breathe life into dead marriages. You say, well, my marriage is on the rocks. There's no life. There's no love. Well, Jesus was dead. And God raised Jesus from the dead. Why can't he bring life into a dead marriage or Why can't he bring life into a dead ministry? I mean, is there anything too hard for God? My aim this morning is to call you in the name of Jesus and for the glory of God and for the good of yourself and your community to be in sync with God about marriage and out of sync with the secular Western culture. I call this salty, radical Jesus kind of living. Because at the end of Luke 14, Jesus says, any of you, any one of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. See, Jesus calls for a radical detachment from things for the sake of the kingdom. And then out of the blue, he says this, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's fit neither for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown out. He who has ears to hear Let them hear. So I want you to hear the voice of God today. I want you to hear the voice of the Son of God today. I want you to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit today. What's the connection? Christians are supposed to be the salt of the earth. To the degree that we are out of step with the values of the world and in step with the values of God. The cultural norm is to seek what to wear and to eat and to drink and to drive and to play with, but we've got to be free from all that and seek the kingdom first, God's rule in our hearts first, and then you'll be salt. Someone said the world is kind of like a blah piece of hamburger. It needs salt to preserve it, and it needs salt to make it have the spice of eternal joy. We are to bring flavor to the world, But so much of the church today is taking its cues from the world. You know, the TV, the radio, the magazines, newspapers, secular shaping voices that the church turns out to be just another piece of blah hamburger. And when the church lands on the world, when when you what what you get is, is not like a salty hamburger. You get two pieces of unsalted hamburger. So I'm calling you this morning to be out of step with the world on the matter of marriage. To get your cues for how to think 
and how to feel about marriage, not from the spirit of our age, but from God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in them, including marriage, for the glory of his name and the good of his people and the good of society. So let's look at the context of Hebrews 13.4. I hope you have your finger on the text. The context is love. It's a salty context. I mean, this is not a list of flavorless rules for Christian behavior. It's a context of love. It's a context of compassion, of confidence and hope and freedom. In other words, it's pretty salty. Verse 1 says, keep on loving each other as brothers. One version says, let brotherly love continue. In other words, keep on loving fellow believers and keep on loving Christians and build fellowship of deep affection and friendship with each other. It's what Whitney was talking about. Find some kind of a small group. Get connected. In Nicaragua, we say it's not just about building buildings. It's about building relationships. Are we building relationships here at Calvary? Are you connected? Is there community? Do you feel the love? Do you feel like you belong? Verse 2 says, don't just love familiar Christians. Love strangers too. Show them hospitality. God will surprise you with unexpected blessings. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. I mean, do people feel welcome here at Calvary? And then verse 3 says, love the prisoners and the ones who are being mistreated. So Love fellow believers, that's verse 1. Love strangers, that's verse 2. Love prisoners, that's verse 3. And then it comes to verse 4. Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure. Followed by verse 5, it says, keep your lives free from the love of money. Followed by the, the amazing, liberating promises that God will never leave you or forsake you. He'll be your helper, so you don't need to crave money if you trust God. Now, I think this is a a salty paragraph. This is radical, Jesus kind of living, Sermon on the Mount type of living. Don't love money, trust God. Love Christians, love strangers, love prisoners, love the hurting, and then right smack dab in the middle of all that radical, salty, non-world-like God way of living, it says marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure. Is marriage being honored here at Calvary. Hey, for those of you caught in the pornographic trap, how is that helping your marriage? If you're single, how is that shaping your view of marriage and sexuality? How does pornography make you more like Jesus? You need to get honest with God. You know, talk to me or somebody that you trust. We need to help. Accountability, marriage should be honored by all. I don't know how you hear this command. Here's how I hear it, and I hope you do too. When it comes right in the midst of, you know, love Christians, love strangers, love prisoners, love the hurting, don't love money, trust God to take care of you. When marriage should be honored by all comes right in the middle of that kind of God talk. You know, I hear it as good news. Honor marriage is like love Christians. Honor marriage is like love strangers. Honor marriage is like love prisoners. Honor marriage is like don't love money because God wants to take care of you. And so when I see at the end of verse 4, God will judge the adulterer and he will judge the sexually immoral. That is, God will judge those who defile the marriage bed. God will judge those who dishonor marriage. When I hear that warning, I don't hear a trigger-happy God. 
I don't hear like a quick-tempered God, you know, just waiting to zap a fornicator or an idolater or, or an adulterer. What I hear is a sober, truthful reinforcement of love for people. God loves it when we love Christians. God loves it when we love strangers. God loves it when we love prisoners. He loves it when we don't love money but trust him for all of our needs. And he loves it when we honor marriage. Why? Because love is good. That's why. It's good for Christians. It's good for strangers. It's good for the prisoners. And not loving money is good for our souls. And honoring marriage is good for us. And it's good for the greater society. And therefore, God would be unloving if he did not judge those who demean marriage and defile it and cheapen it and ridicule it and redefine it and treat it with contempt. You see, God's judgment comes from love. Yes, God is love, but he's thrice holy, three times. Holy, holy, holy. So I hope you get the flavor of this passage. It's, it's wonderfully salty. It has a, a lot of God in it and a lot of love and a big helping of ultimate issues like the warning of judgment and the promise that God will never leave us or forsake us if we trust him. So when I call you this morning to honor marriage, to keep the marriage bed pure, I hope you hear it as part of the overall call of Jesus to be salty, to be radical, Jesus kind of living, countercultural Christian. Let me give you a few specific ways to honor marriage. First of all, do not confuse it with same-sex marriages. Don't do that. Nowhere in Scripture does God define marriage between two people of the same sex. Nowhere. Not even close. Leviticus 18 and 20 calls homosexual lifestyle an abomination. Romans 1 calls it unnatural. Our culture, of course, is saying it's okay. And even many churches, even many folks within our United Methodist denomination, either scripture is not true or God has changed his mind or our culture is wrong. And the approval of the homosexual lifestyle to me is like saying, you know, murder is okay now, adultery is okay now, lying is just part of my nature you know, somebody says, but I was born that way, Dave. Well, so was I. We're all born in sin, are we not? We are prone to wander. And the problem is this. Our culture has redefined sin in this area of homosexuality. And if we deny the problem, we deny the cure. And so we're making a mockery out of God's word. Let me just read you uh, a portion from Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 26. It says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. And they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice. They're gossips and slanders and God-haters and insolent and arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, faithless, heartless, ruthless, although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve 
of those who practice them. My point here is simply this, to call homosexual or lesbian relationships marriage or to treat them as marriage is to treat an abomination as marriage. And that's the exact opposite of holding marriage in honor and keeping the marriage bed undefiled. And so the first way to honor marriage in our day is not to confuse it with, with the abomination of homosexual or lesbian partnerships. Listen, God's not a killjoy, but he's opposed to what kills joy. In the beginning, God created Male and female, in his own image, he blessed them. He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. And this is the glory of the precious and honorable reality called marriage. One man and one woman cleaving to each other alone in covenant commitment and one flesh sexual union until death separates them. God's judgment on homosexual and lesbian relationships is not because he's a killjoy, but it's because he's opposed to what kills joy. And my opposition to such partnerships is not some knee-jerk homophobia. As I am sometimes accused of. But it's because of a settled and reasonable conviction that God knows better than anybody what is good for us and what is good for society. I mean, social science research bears this out and backs this up. God's plan is one man, one woman, one life. My brother was, was in, in, in dealing with homosexuality in his life, and God changed him. Such were some of you, you know, in 1 Corinthians 6. I remember speaking to a, a young man in our youth group when I was in seminary, who had, I thought, come to know the Lord, and he ended up uh, leading the first gay parade in Chicago, stood right next side Mayor, Jen, uh, Mayor Jane Byrne. So it's not like some, something new to me, or it's like an, a knee-jerk reaction for me. I've thought about this. I've studied this a long time. I want to have a biblical balance between the clear conviction about the sinfulness of homosexual behavior on the one hand and patient compassion to come alongside those of you with homosexual desires and your friends and your relatives and seek your good. God loves sinners, right? He hates sin, right? What does God think of homosexuals? He loves them, right? What does God think of homosexuality? He hates it, right? And it was on the cross that sin was dealt with. And it was on the cross that love was demonstrated. I do not have a desire to, to drive homosexual people away. If sinners are not welcome here at Calvary, we would all have to leave. And I've said that before, amen? We'd all have to leave. Believe me. <laughs> Quit pretending. We're not going to change the definition of sin here, though. And I cannot bless the unblessable. I will not. So how can we honor marriage in our culture? Don't confuse it with same-sex marriages. And then also, don't commit fornication or adultery. That's what the second half of verse 4 says. Keep the marriage bed pure, or let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. And so the writer is saying that there are two ways of dishonoring marriage and defiling the marriage bed, adultery and fornication. 
In other words, having sexual relations with somebody who is not your lawful spouse. It's called adultery. If you're married, it's called fornication. If you're not married, both are a dishonor to marriage and a defiling of the marriage bed because God made marriage and he made marriage alone as the holy and safe and ultimately joyful place for sexual relations. The text says that God will judge fornicators and adulterers because they dishonor marriage and they defile the marriage bed. In other words, God's judgment falls on unrepentant people who destroy what is meant for joy. And that word repent, repentant leads to a final way to honor marriage and to keep the marriage bed undefiled, though I think there are many more. And it's this, live out forgiveness, live out joy, live out hope. We honor marriage when we live out the clean and happy future of our unclean and forgiven past. The text says that God will judge fornicators. He will judge adulterers, just like 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and 10 says that fornicators and adulterers will not inherit the kingdom of God. But then the very next verse says, and such were some of you. (laughs) Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. People can change. People can be forgiven. People can be washed. Look at me. There is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot forgive. There is no hurt that the blood of Jesus can't heal. There's, the blood of Jesus can just wash it away. There's power in the blood to save and to heal and to deliver and to cleanse and to forgive. So there's judgment on fornicators and adulterers, but not all of them. There's an escape from judgment for some. Hebrews teaches this message very clearly. In Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, it says, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So you can see that there will be a judgment. But Christ has borne the sins of many. He has taken the judgment for their fornication and their adultery upon himself and now is coming. Not to do that again, but to save us from that final judgment. Or look at Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. But when this priest, that is Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins and sat down at the right hand of God, since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. So again, we see those two things. Christ took sins like fornication and adultery upon himself and paid their penalty in his own death. But there's coming a time when his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. There is a judgment. So what we see is that there are two groups of people, those whose sins are covered and forgiven by Jesus and those whose sins are on their own heads in the judgment. And the difference is in the turning from sin, from idols to God through Jesus Christ for forgiveness and help. And then Hebrews 7.25 says, Jesus is able for all time to save completely those who come to God through him. So turn from fornication. Turn from adultery. Draw near to God through Jesus. He will save for all time. He'll enable you to live out this clean and happy future from an unclean and a forgiven past. My point is not just the ushy, gushy, lovey-dovey side of marriage. The point is this. This living out of forgiveness and hope actually honors 
marriage. And the reason it does is because God created marriage. And he created it to be a living drama of the loving relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. And so the people that honor this intention best are the people that live out the very forgiveness and the the cleanness and the joy that God designed marriage to portray. There is no more powerful witness for Jesus Christ than a good marriage and a healthy, happy, albeit not perfect family. Marriage is a picture. A A happy, healthy, holy marriage is a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a picture that says a thousand words, right? Let me just share a few items of this picture. Marriage is a picture of courtship. Think about that. Jesus Christ is the completer of you. He is what you need, but you don't even know it. He seeks you out as a man seeks a woman. He reveals himself to you, and he tries to win you over with his love. His love for you was demonstrated at the cross. Jesus valued you at the cross. He shed his own blood to pay for your sins so that you could be reconciled to God. Now he offers you life with him. He offers you the gift of his shed blood to demonstrate his love for you. And he shows that he will never deface, he'll never devalue, he'll never deflect your beauty, but rather that he will only cause you to become more radiant through his sacrificial love. With honor, he offers you himself and a life forever with him. The man in courtship, he does the same thing. He offers a woman uh, life with him. Jesus offered his valuable blood to prove his love. The man offers, what, a, a valuable diamond to prove his love. The man invites a woman to enter into life with him so that he can always beautify and bless the bride just as Christ ever lives to beautify his church. Marriage is a picture of courtship. It's also a picture of proposal. The man proposes to the woman, inviting her to enter into a covenant relationship reserved only for one. The man offers himself to be the leader, the lover, the lifter of her life. Jesus Christ proposes the same to you today. He will save you. He will lead you into eternal life through a covenant relationship with himself. So there's courtship, there's proposal. Marriage is also a picture of engagement. By faith, when the proposal is offered, then the woman woman trusts the man to do that which he promised and to come for her. Our Lord Jesus proposed to us. We believed his promise. And now we're engaged to Christ. And now we wait for him to come for us. And he will come and he will get his bride. And then the last uh, picture, marriage is a picture of the wedding of Christ. In Matthew 25, verse 6, at midnight, the cry rang out, behold, the bridegroom comes. Come out to meet him. When Jesus comes, then he will dress us for the wedding. He'll transform our lowly bodies into the image of his glorious body. He will present us to the Father. He will have the the marriage supper of the Lamb, and he'll take us to our new home where we will reign with him forever and ever. Jesus is coming soon. He's coming for his bride. There's so much more, I think, that I could have said, that could be said, and I I don't doubt that God is speaking to you way, speaking to you maybe in ways that I never dreamed he would. And so I just leave the rest for the work of the Holy Spirit and the word of God and prayer in your life.
God, make us a very salty people for the good of our decaying society. Romans 13, 4, marriage should be honored by all. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We just thank you that you are the lover of our souls, that our relationship with you is the divine romance, Lord, that you chase us down. You hunt for us, not to hurt us or to punish us for our sins, but to save us from our sins. We're so thankful for this glorious gospel that you've given us, Lord. And you've told us to seek first your kingdom and to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Lord, help us to do that in a humble, gracious way, but not compromising the truth of your word and the truth of who you are and your character. Lord, thank you for the ministry of this church that we call Calvary United Methodist Church. Lord, I thank you for the generous hearts here. And Lord, we just want to continue our worship of you with our offering time. When we bring you the tithe, when you, we offer you these gifts so that your word can continue to go forth. Lord, we love you and we just thank you uh, that there is power in the blood of Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel that even though you didn't know any sin, Jesus, you became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, it's hard to believe that we can make that great exchange, our sin, for your righteousness. That's why your grace is so amazing, Lord. I pray that we would walk out of here with our mouth open, just in awe and wonder of your amazing, loving grace in Jesus' name. Amen.